I made the mistake of saying, I really want to bring Hollywood celebrities back on the screen and make an animated film that was so photorealistic that you would swear that Bogart's back and you could make Casablanca too. Big mistake. But back then, I thought this was a great friggin' idea. We're all about turning a crappy situation into something positive. A quarter million dollars of credit card I debt. I still remember the day when no one turned out. Throw it in the garbage and start from scratch. I could give myself a chance, so I started something. I mean, I think that counts as from poop to gold. <laughs> Our sponsor for this episode is our 14-day video script challenge. Yes, we are sponsoring our own show. Yes, we are. <laughs> Welcome back to From Poop to Gold. I'm Benton Crane, your co-host and the CEO of Harmon Brothers. Today I have on the line with me Jeff Lotman. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So Jeff is the author of the book Invisible Marketing. His business is Global Icons, and they specialize in brand licensing. And you know their clients are some of the big brands that we've all heard of. We all know and, and love these brands. Brands like Kleenex, Hostess, Nokia, Lamborghini, uh, Turtle Wax, Sunkissed, uh, Sun Vespa, and the list goes on. Tell, uh, tell our listeners, give us the elevator version of, of what you're up to and why it should matter to them. Sure. So I work in a field called brand licensing, which is the most misunderstood field there is. And almost no one really understands it, which is very frustrating as a guy that if you meet someone and say, what do you do? You could say you're in marketing or you're a doctor or you're a vet. If I say I'm a licensing guy, they're like, what is that? But really at its simplest form is we work with brand owners, like some of the ones you mentioned, that want to put their product on a manufact on a brand new product that's being manufactured. Mm -hmm. And specifically manufacturers, if they want to go create a brand new toaster and they want to call Jeff, how much shelf space they're going to get? It's pretty hard. And if they're the private label guy, meaning they're the guy making it for Kirkland or for Walmart or Sam's Club underneath their brand, it's that much harder because if that were the case and someone comes in cheaper, they'll toss you out because there's no name. But if you had a name on the brand, in the case like Crock-Pot, which is, was one of our clients, that would be something that would keep you from losing that shelf space. So we connect brand owners with manufacturers and we're the person in between. We're like a real estate agent for brands. We're a talent agent for brands. Well, I, I love this. So uh, our listeners who, who follow the show know that I use an example um, quite often of what not to do with business success. Um, I, I love to, to talk about Snuggie. Um, because in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, I can't remember the exact time frame, Snuggie sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to $500 million worth of Snuggies. Yes. <laughs> I have no and, idea. And now you fast forward to today, and they're nowhere to be heard of. The up-and-coming generation can't even remember what a Snuggie is. Like you say Snuggie, and they don't even know what you're talking about. And so I often talk about that as an example of those were people who built a very successful business, but then failed to build a brand that could stand the test of time. Or, or bigger people came in and sort of ate them for lunch. But to your point, someone could then go to the people that have Snuggies, which is probably Procter & Gamble, and say, hey, I want to go create a brand new you know, line of diapers, and I'll pay you money to use the Snuggies brand. And that's exactly what we do. Exactly. So, so that, that's, my, cool. th that, that's my question for you. So if Snuggie had said, you know, at some point while they're in their heyday, if they had said, okay, we need to make a brand that's going to stand the test of time that people know, they love, they remember, they trust. And part of that process 
is creating a portfolio of great products that can live under that brand. That's where this brand licensing that you're talking about, that can come into play at that point. Most definitely. And especially if competition comes in where you can't afford to outspend them, you can then expand your reach and your portfolio. Because now all of a sudden you're doing diaper wipes and you're doing cloth diapers and you're doing baby powder and baby oil. And you can create this whole universe of all these things that really support babies under the Snuggy brand. And it was such a great brand. I'm surprised it's gone. I remember even the talking bear, the bear that was always this incredibly soft little bear that you saw with Snuggies. And you would think that's a great example of a brand that could be brought back. And probably if they built it out more, probably would have had a harder time losing that brand to market share. Um, let's dive into your poop to gold journey. Tell us about on your journey, where was that moment where things got really dark, things got really tough, and it kind of became that pivotal moment um, that, that later put you on the path to gold. But for now, let's talk about the poop side of it. You know, we'll sure. Take us to that moment. So I worked in the food business for 18 years. I was a manufacturer to McDonald's. I was actually making hamburgers and chicken nuggets and things like that and decided I really wanted to start my own thing. I loved animation. I loved old movies. So I made the mistake of saying, I really want to bring Hollywood celebrities back on the screen and make an animated film that was so photorealistic that you would swear the Bogart's back and you could make Casablanca too. Big mistake. But back then, I thought this was a great friggin' idea. <laughs> so I first approached the agencies that represented all these deceased celebrities. There were two of them back then, Mark Rossler and Roger Richmond. Unfortunately, Roger passed. Mark is still around, CMG. And they both said no to me. And the reason they said no is not only did I want the right to recreate Cagney, I wanted the right then to then license out the new Cagney that I created because if I'm building the brand, I should be able to do that. Not knowing that, of course, that if I was doing that, I would take business away from them. That's why they said no. So my poop moment was I really felt like this is something I want to do. I was a huge animation fan. I could not just let it sit there. And I found out that in a, in a will, there's something called a successor of interest. And a successor of interest says who has what rights to what. Now, in California, when you die, your rights as a celebrity becomes an asset that can be transferred to your family or somebody else. So that someone else would then be the successor of interest that has that. And believe it or not, you can send in through the mail, remember what mail was, and actually to the city and write for copies of wills. So I got Cagney's will and Dietrich's will and W.C. Field will and, and I got like 20 wills and they all came in and I'm looking them up and it says who the people are. And I started making phone calls. And everyone's like, yeah, you don't really do anything like that. Are wills really public documents? Yeah, they are public documents. Yeah, unless there's oh, wow. maybe there's a way to seal them, but almost all wills are public documents. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. And um, and I met with actually I went up and I met with some people and I actually met with the James Cagney estate and the woman's name was Marge and I went up there and I met with her and she said to me, "All right, I love the idea of seeing Jimmy back on stage, but." I don't want the guy representing me. And I think you're good. I think you really understand marketing and he's a lawyer. So what if I also give you the right? So you have to represent me and I'll give you the animation rights. I'm like, okay. And Global Icons was born. And then by the way, I continue to waste money with the company called Virtual Celebrity, which is the animation company, finally shut it down. And then I became the largest dead celebrity licensing company pretty much there. I had Cagney and Dietrich and WC Fields and Three Stooges and, you know, and, 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 and like 30 deceased celebrities, which is a great business, except that eBay sort of killed it because back then collectibles is where all the money came from. Collectible plates, a company yep. called the Franklin Mint. So back then Bradford, which is a big plate company, would publish these books every year before the internet was there. And it would show, oh, 1999, here's what the rates of the plate are. Here are 19, you know, and, uh, you know, 1920, I mean, you know, I mean, 20, 2000 is the, the price of the plates. 2021, here's the price of the plates. And there was really no way to know what the value was. So every year, of course, they showed you the plates were going up. 
because the support was that you would then continue to buy these plates, which of course they were printing for the sake of discussion like money. Well, then eBay came along and it became the great equalizer because they were like, hey, you know those damn Three Stooges plates you have in the basement? Let's try to sell them because it says here in the book they're worth 375 bucks a piece and we got five of them. And everyone started selling all this stuff and it's just the market collapsed because they were selling like 5,000 plates and there weren't enough buyers to buy those plates. So we very quickly saw that the collectible business was going away. So my next poop moment was, okay, I got to fire all my clients and I got to start again. And I love licensing. That really went really well for me. And licensing is $160 billion a year industry. But dead celebrity licensing is about a $400 million a year industry. But brands is a $60 billion a year industry, only second to characters like Mickey Mouse and so on and so forth. So I decided instead of being a big fish in a small pond, I really wanted to be a small fish in a much bigger pond. And now we're the you know third or fourth largest brand licensing company in the world. That was 23 years ago. Wow. For you know, for our listeners who are you know they're they're largely entrepreneurs, marketers. Um, you know, many of them are are much earlier in their businesses, much earlier in their careers. Um, is brand licensing something that they should already be thinking about? Is it something that they should have on the on their radar? What's your recommendation there? Well, two ways. Again, if you're a manufacturer and you're trying to put a product on shelf, as a lot of these brands are, it's really hard to build brand awareness. And more importantly, it's even harder to get shelf space. And now with retail, more contraction going on, more retailers are going away, there's less places to sell your product. It really helps to have some way that people go, oh my God, I really love Lamborghini. Like someone approached us recently, we're about to launch a pen, really incredible Lamborghini headphones. And this guy makes incredible headphones. He's been in the business for a long time, but he really wanted to price one above his own price, which already was premium. He wanted to create super premium headphones. And he came to us and gave him the right to do that. So yes, I think entrepreneurs should be looking that way. Or if they have a business up and going and it's running and they're starting to get known for something, they possibly could look at licensing that out too. Now, you don't have to have a national brand. If you're known in one region, that alone can be really big, especially if you're like in food, like if you have a great sauce or a great rib or something. A lot of those supermarkets love to buy regional brands and really support. Mm -hmm. So there's a way to do that too. Um, and then of course, there's ways to try to build your brand. It's harder if you're not in something like food, that's a little bit easier to actually license your brand out if you're small, but potentially again, you can start with some regional players. It's not easy. What about, uh, what about kind of this new up and coming uh, industry of, of influencers, right? So you've got a, a LinkedIn influencer or a fashion influencer or beauty yeah, influencer, Instagram, you know, whoever it is, do they also have opportunities to license out their brand and put it on products? Most definitely. I know people that represent like the kid that does all the unboxing videos, like the number one kid in the space. And now he's about to design his own line of toys. Perfect example. And there's a couple people that started as, um, you know, in, as just as an influencer or creating a vlog and, and how the whole thing really, really grown. Glossier is an incredible example. You have a woman that started this website that specifically was a community for women to talk about beauty tips. From that, it grew into a beauty line, then grew into a beauty company. And it's like a billion dollars a year in sales. It's, it's an incredible story. It's all about how community can really make a big difference. And you can start that way online if you really have a niche. The key is, it's great if you can try to find a white space. I define a white space as a space where not anyone is now, or at the very least, not a lot of people are in it. Because at the end of the day, you know, you really want to try to get your brand known. And then if that's the case, you got to think to yourself, well, how am I going to make myself truly unique for a different customer than currently is being satisfied? Or what is it about those other products that are there that isn't really the best thing? And is there a way that I can twist it or combine something else? Um, yeah, it's those are things you really got to look at. There's a great book by a guy named DeBono called Lateral Thinking. 
And it should take two disparate items that have no connection and you try to squish it together. And it's not so much that you're going to necessarily like a toothbrush and a comb, just as a strange thing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to come up with something that's saleable. But once you start to look at things that are a little bit different um, and think of it differently, it makes your brain think differently. And then you can start to say, I wonder if I could take a toothbrush and a comb and make it into something. Yeah, I I love that. And I think I read somewhere that some of the greatest inventions and some of the greatest thinkers in history have developed two very lateral or distinct areas of expertise. And just because they happen to have, you know, they're the one person in the world who has those two areas of expertise, they were able to kind of combine them in a very unique way that no one else had thought of before. Exactly. It's really cool. He actually made it. It's hard to find that I bought one on eBay, but he actually has this ball that he made that has like 10,000 little words on it. Mm-hmm. And literally the idea would be you take it and take two out and try to think about what I would do with these two words. It doesn't have to be necessarily a creative product, but just how do these two words connect? And it more was an exercise that you should do every day or something to really get yourself primed. It's a, he's got some really great books. I think he's passed away, but his books are, there's plenty of his books out there. Ed, Edward DeBono. Edward DeBono and Lateral yeah. Thinking. Lateral Thinking, yeah. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, uh, short, short, easy book. Tell us about your book, Invisible Marketing. Sure. So my book was really born out of the fact that most people don't understand what licensing is, and more specifically, how licensing works. And that when I approach a brand manager or a CMO, they think of it as like putting a logo on a shirt, or they're afraid that if I get my brand out, someone's going to abuse it, or I'm not going to have control. So it really was to explain what the benefits are. And then it really is about brand exposure awareness, as we talked about a lot of Snuggies, um, and how that really works. And the reason I call it invisible is the problem with brand licensing, people don't know it exists. Like, for example, we represent a Crock-Pot, as I said before. So Crock-Pot is known for that item. They like own that space. When you think of that space, it's almost like Kleenex. You think of it as Crock-Pot, even though it may not yeah. be truly a slow cooker. Yep. And they're all sold in the exact same aisle, in the electric aisle, which is like this boring aisle where the poor toasters and microwaves, and they all go to live forever until someone buys one. Mm-hmm. Compared to the other aisles where there's a lot more movement. So we met with Crock-Pot and we looked at what things could we combine to try to get a little excitement. And we thought the food space made a lot of sense because they're in the food business, really the food cooking business. Right, right. But so why not create a line of spices that then you can add to the Crock-Pot? And then once we got that deal done, why not get a set of food and ingredients that you can literally get to dump in your Crock-Pot and make instant Crock-Pot food? And then it was so did so well, we actually then created pre-made Crock-Potted food that you could buy frozen if you didn't want to Crock-Pot it yourself. But what was amazing about it is all of a sudden there were times of the year that there was a promotion and you would see an end cap of the seasoning and the crock pots in the food aisle. Well, think how incredible it is for that brand because now there's no competition in the food aisle with any other slow cooker. They're all over here in the boring aisle no one's looking at. And now all of a sudden you're in this aisle and you go, oh my God, sure, I'm going to buy a crock pot and I'm going to buy... And it was really great. And for them, they loved it. And it's um, it's just, that's the frustrating part. People don't really understand. That's the value of licensing because it's invisible. Nobody knows who made that seasoning. You think, pot, pot, seasoning. Just, that's what made it. You know, one thing I find so fascinating about this is that entrepreneurs always, you know, they're always working towards building a brand that, you know, there's this idea of like, oh man, once I have that brand, but what you're telling me is that there are brands that already achieved, you know, becoming a brand and having that brand equity 
And then they struggle to know what to do with it or how to actually get the value out of the brand. And that's where this licensing comes in is it's connecting, you know, great products and great brands, bring them under the, you know, uh, make that connection so that you can actually leverage the brand's value. That's awesome. And back once more to your studies is that there are opportunities to bring back old brands. And for example, we just have, we just licensed and we haven't yet announced it, but I'm happy to say it here. There's a brand called Camp Beverly Hills. You may be too young for it, but in the 70s and 80s, it was on fire. They were doing three, $400 million in retail sales of this apparel that was big in the 70s and late 80s. It was even turned into a global brand and then it went away and it's been gone for 20 years. But anybody that's like, in LA or sort of more fashion bent and a little bit older knows that brand. And when we talk about that, we're bringing it back. Everyone's like, oh my God, I can't wait to see it again. So sometimes you have this magic out there that's sitting there waiting for someone to pick it back up. So, and they say, well, how'd you find this guy? Well, first off, it's easy to find out who owns the trademark to a brand. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you then track down the person or the lawyer. And from there, you then track down the person and say, hey, I want to use your brand on, I want to bring Camp Beverly Hills back again. So it's not that hard, like I did with Wills, with mm-hmm. deceased Hollywood celebrities, to find a brand. Like Snuggies, we keep on coming back to it because it's such a great example. Um, again, it's probably owned by Procter & Gamble. Now, mind you, they may have brought that brand because they competed with Cottonelle or whatever the other big diaper brand is. I don't know what it is. And oh, they shut it down. And they may have spiked it themselves so they would not, so they gain the market share back. That happens too sometimes. I see. So Snuggies um, was actually the, the huge infomercial that was selling these fleece blankets that like... For a while, that was everywhere. Yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And, and like, depending on where you read, it's between three and $500 million. But apparently they weren't interested in then taking that success. And, and moving it. Sure. And where's the Snuggy hat? Where's yeah. the Snuggy sweats? Where's the, where's the shoes? That would have been a great example. hundred percent. Sorry. I, I, Jeff, how can our listeners stay in touch with you? Well, first off, obviously, please feel free to go to amazon.com and, and buy the book. That would be great. And that's invisible uh, marketing, correct? Invisible marketing, invisible marketing. And um, you could go to our website, globalicons.com, or feel free to email me, you know, jeff.lotman at globalicons.com. It's L-O-T-M-A-N. And I'm happy to help. And even if your brand isn't big enough, I'm so happy to help and give you some advice And because you never know. And it's always good to give people some, you know, I'm always trying to help people out. It's good to, you know, bring brands out and try different things. And, yeah, you know, as you know, as I'm sure you heard on your show, it's really about having the persistence. It's about, you know, as I did originally, it's not taking no for an answer. And I really live my life like that. I really believe that there is no no. There's only no now. And so sometimes I put things away. Like, for example, we represent Hostess. We chased this brand for 10 years through four CMOs, kept on waiting for the next guy, next guy, next guy. And finally, the last guy said yes, and they hired us. And it's been great. We did a huge line of cereal, and we did some uh, cookies, and we did some um, icing and some other things we're doing with it. It's really great brand with Twinkies and so on and so forth. But you have to be persistent. You just can't let go. You just got to stick with it. Are you active on any of the social platforms? Not really, honestly. I mean, I publish a lot on LinkedIn. I mean, I, I've been I usually do articles. I usually comment on stuff. So I'm on LinkedIn a fair amount. Um, I don't really post personally Instagram very, very rarely. And Facebook, it's not my not really my world. I mean, I um, I race old cars. So occasionally if I'm racing, I will be on Facebook. But it's not it's not really a place I normally am at. Yeah, I, I hear you. I'm in a similar boat. LinkedIn is where I uh, where I do most of my uh, most of my posting. So um, I'll make sure to connect with you there. And then, of course, our listeners who are active on LinkedIn can connect with you there as well. And um, and otherwise, I'm going to go check out your book, um, add it to my uh, to my bedside uh, 
my, my bedside pile of books, and um, I, I'm excited to, uh, to learn more about it. Well, thank you. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And of course, for our listeners, if you found value in today's episode and the things that you heard from Jeff Lottman, uh, we would love it to death if you would share the episode. And of course, you know, like and subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. As entrepreneurs and small businesses, we all kind of reach that point where we know we've created something awesome and we want to share it with the world, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that very next step that can oftentimes be really intimidating or really scary, or you just don't know where to go next, right? And the beautiful thing about this 14-day script challenge is you get your hand held from, okay, you have this cool product, now let's go research and find the exact way to present it and message it to the world in a way that resonates and gets people excited and they're ready to swipe their credit card and purchase. And in the 14-day script challenge, you get the opportunity to go through that step-by-step with our writers who have done it dozens and dozens of times. You actually watch us go through each of the steps ourselves and create it with a real client, a real product, and um, it's a real campaign that's out there that's been very successful. That's right. And the feedback that we've had on this thing has just been phenomenal. I mean, we get comment after comment and emails flowing in from people all over the world who have just uh, raved about the impact that this has had on their business. People tell us over and over again, it is just a huge value punch for the investment for this 14-day script challenge and, and really gave them the tool set they needed to walk through it and make it happen. And we've had dozens of students who have successfully taken the challenge, written their script, launched their ad campaigns, and driven success for their business. It's pretty amazing. For more information, go to hbros.co slash script. That's h-b-r-o-s dot c-o slash script.